before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctorate of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctorate of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Well, every minister has experienced this. You spent all week pouring into a sermon preparation, and then life happens. Injustice in our world happens. Opportunities to respond theologically happens. Over the last several weeks, a human rights crisis has been uncovered in the U.S. immigration detention centers. CBF's executive coordinator, along with many other faith leaders, flew down to Texas-Mexico border to advocate for immigration reform. This isn't a political issue. This is a theological issue. Our previously scheduled interview with author of Demanding Liberty, Brandon J. O'Brien, will premiere next week. Also be on the lookout for the next couple of episodes, including Colbert Report's chaplain, Jesuit priest, Father James Martin, as well as podcast host and author, Christian Pyatt. Well, we are taking a break from what we were originally going to uh, bring to you this week for the CBF podcast. Um, we had set to uh, air an interview with the author of Demanding Liberty, Brandon J. O'Brien, uh, as a week of you know, this is a week of celebrating American liberty and talking about a broader issue of religious liberty, but life happens and justice in the world happens. And certainly um, this has been a, a difficult uh, last two weeks for those who um, have had their finger on the pulse of uh, the greater immigration crisis. And so joining me uh, for a conversation is our executive coordinator, Susie Painter. Uh, Susie, Hi, thanks, for, thanks for joining the conversation. Um, so well, happy to be here. So, uh, a little background for obviously this has been a, a hot button uh, topic uh, in the U.S. Um, but just kind of backtrack um, somewhere in the ballpark of June twentieth, June twenty first, um, images and sounds of um, children being separated from their parents and put into these detention centers and, and these uh, just absolutely astonishing uh, circumstances um, got out. And uh, of course, it hit all the major uh, media outlets and um, blew up into um, 
a political firestorm and certainly um, became something that people were becoming socially conscious of. So I wonder for you, you know, kind of going back here, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, what was what was running through your mind when the sounds and images of, of children in these detention centers were made public? Two things hit me immediately, and that was, since I've been familiar with the immigration processes and the, and the complexities of different immigration categories from my ministry, both in Texas and, and through our field personnel in CBS, um, my, my first thought was, what has changed to precipitate something that is um, so different and and so harsh? And um, one of the things that immediately, one of the immediate things that came to my mind is the that there has been no particular crisis to precipitate such a harsh response, and. So my my immediate feeling was this harsh separation is not being compelled by some immediate emergency. It's you know it's not nine eleven. There's not you know something egregious hasn't happened, and yet this very extreme response uh, that seems so disproportionate to the situation. And that that really is where I began to be engaged with, you know, a curiosity about why such a disproportionate response would be um, would be implemented. Well, certainly, as as we think around this, there is the um, there's the political response to it. There's certainly the the social response to it um but but for you what is what what makes this a theological matter (laughs) you know and that just to continue my my thought about that exactly right you know theologically we we know that um the image of god that's in every person and the, the honoring of uh humanity of every person even in the most egregious situations of criminal uh, conviction and incarceration, all these things are still values that have to be held up. And so in, in this situation, certainly with children and certainly with families, um, our, our theological, um, our, our theological stackpole that's, that's inside of us, this, plumb line that here's the image of God and here is our, the way in which God is working in each person's life and the the value of each person as a child of God. Okay, just starting with that quality and protecting that and nurturing that the best and most compassionate way we can, even in the most dire circumstances, that's our, our theological stepping stones. We, we go down that path all the time in lots of situations. And so this particular response to children and parents seemed to violate this commitment that we have to the humane treatment and the honoring of the Mago Day in each person. 
uh, in this situation because the um, the punishment did not seem to fit the crime, nor did it does it seem to honor that basic theological and human um, reality of, of God's presence uh, in us and with us and in our commitment as Christians to, to maintain our focus on, on that. Um, there's so many scriptures that, of course, are, are about humans moving throughout the earth. I mean, migration is uh, a part of our biblical story. It, it is the biblical story. And um, so in all eras of history, uh, the migration of people is one of the ways in which God's work is done in the world. And we know that um, that has al always been a, a place of focus for the church and for Christians as they've adapted their Christian faith from one culture to another and different diasporas of, of people across the centuries. And um, as people have moved and taken their faith with them, uh, whether it's in the evangelical and mission-oriented way or whether it's just the adaptation of our faith in different cultures, that Christianity is one of those faiths. Um, a part of our faith is that it does adapt to culture and is carried throughout the world. And so I think that's another theological touch point for us, Imago Dei being one, but also the nature of the spreading of the gospel and the spreading of our faith and the contextualization of faith um, within different cultures also makes us very sensitive to the movement of people and, and where is the hand of God in the movement of people on the earth. We've seen it in scripture. We've seen it in history. And I think we have to be attuned to that in our time as well. I think one of the things that has uh, surprised me in a hopeful way is that um, I was anticipating as uh, this information, as these images and sounds were being released, that it would become a polarizing political um, battle, if you will, you know, that we would draw to our given uh, political sides and we would stand by you know, whoever our political figureheads are to, to respond as they would deem it necessary for us to respond. But, you know, as we have seen, um, people from the right and the left and the middle have been outraged by this. Um, so much so that it, it forced the hand in some regards of, of politicians to, to change policies and make movements. And we can certainly get into the important aspects of what has and has not changed as, you know, these policies were signed in the last couple of days. But, um, you know, th there's certainly um, a positivity uh, around this issue that people want to see a change. People stand in all different perspectives when it comes to immigration, but certainly people saw this as a human rights um, mm -hmm. issue that, that we all, no matter where we stand, uh, saw this as something that is wrong and, and, and unjust. Um, and so much so that you, you didn't just talk about this from afar, um, but you, you're in Texas right now, uh, and you've been along the, the U.S.-Mexico border all week working with other faith leaders. So what, what drew you down uh, to the border? 
Exactly the capricious nature of this, of using children and families in a kind of brinkmanship, brinksmanship, um, is unconscionable. And it has pricked the conscience of our nation and the reaction of our nation. That even where there are issues to be resolved in terms of immigration violations, it should not be done on the backs of children and families. And the, um, we have so much capacity to respond to people through our processes and uh, in ways that are compassionate and are ways that are uh, that maintain the health and well-being of families that there's no no need to unnecessarily burden and harm children or put parents in uh, positions of stress so one of the things we know about situations like this, that the safe voices, safe voices, moral voices have an, a very important role to play. And especially um, most recently, I've been here with several groups of, of faith leaders um, in different at different sites, both in these detention sites where the children are being held separated from their parents. Even after the signing of the executive order and they said, well, we're going to reunite families, but in, in the practical issues are that these are just giant warehouses, and the, even if the mothers and the children are in the same warehouse, they're not necessarily in the same cage. Um, if they're very young children, they are, but if uh, even children, you know, that are 10, 12, or maybe in the same warehouse with their parents, but they're in separate cages with other children their ages and the parents in other cages. So the, um, just this, you know, it begs the question from a faith perspective and with a moral, you know, our purpose to, to deliver moral guidance as faith leaders, um, there must be many, many other solutions to this problem than separating uh, parents and children and putting them in cages inside of warehouses. Um, so it was the nature of the sort of the punishment doesn't fit the crime, the disproportionate nature of it and the inhumane treatment that brought me to the, to the border and to join with other faith leaders from all over the country that have also come with that same compelling made also to bring things for the children or and to bring things for the families um, who are facing deprivation in that way. There's been somewhat of a, a cosmetic change in some of these facilities over the last couple of days, but I wonder if you would describe to us what you have seen. Well, you as um, as you can probably imagine, they're not allowing people to go inside these facilities anymore. I think you have to be a senator um, to get in, although there have been people that have um, described them to us. And we've also seen them, the external part to these. And just to, just to make this clear, there, there are two kinds of um, uh, processes. One is a criminal process in courts. The other is immigration process, which is not not the same. Um, so you're, you, let's say that you are picked up for uh, illegally crossing the border. Um, 
your immigration status is determined in one set of processes. The criminality of your entry or the criminality of your, if you, is determined in the court system. So there's two, two different systems. In the past, and if you remember from 2014, like when unaccompanied minors came across the border, so many children were unaccompanied and they came across the border. That category of unaccompanied minors is an immigration category. And so the detention centers that are being used were created um, because of that category of unaccompanied minors. And unaccompanied minors do not have, uh, there's no guarantee of legal representation, for example, like there is in the court system. So once children are separated from their parents, they become a new category of unaccompanied minors. And they are, uh, therefore, they're cared for in basic needs sense. There's food, there's medical care, um, but there is um, also isolation, confinement, coldness, concrete floors, all that sort of thing. And um, those children are not entitled um, by law to legal representation. And so they are not only isolated from their parents, but they're set adrift to try to figure this out on their own. And that to me is just an added burden of trauma for a child. And we've talked with the, their organization on the border called ProBar, and they are attorneys and, and specialists that are trained in child trauma and child communication to try to help the kids even understand what they're about to face in terms of processes. And um, so the fact that there is no, there was no more planning and no more capacity building and no, no more humane development of how to support these children that were about to be put into this category of unaccompanied minors the minute they're separated from their parents. And there was no way of, you know, like you go to a hospital, at least in the, when a baby's born, they have a little bracelet that has a number of the mother and the number of the child, and the nurse checks it every time you come in the room. There's not even that kind of identification system that's in place for these children and their families. So we're talking about 2,400 children. Um, and the, the, the need to prepare, oh, earlier this week, we heard from a neurologist um, who came to the border as part of a team of doctors just talking about what is required for helping heal these children after this experience. And um, also heard from the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church, McAllen, here of what in, in their church, the people that are hired to work in these facilities, you know, the difficulties that they're having because of these different kinds of expectations of implementing these sorts of uh, insufficient processes. These are people that are trained, um, maybe some of them trained social workers. They know this isn't the way to, to treat children. So um, understanding that they're, um, you know, it's like just choosing some of the worst possible ways of treating children. 
uh, and putting them in untenable situations where they don't even have a surrogate adult as their advocate seems just an unbelievable nightmare. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to helping you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. To get a taste of Campbell's experience, you are invited to attend the World Religions and Global Culture Center's first international conference on religious diversity, July 26th to the 27th. The theme of the conference is Jesus in a Pluralistic Age. Respected Christian and non-Christian leaders and scholars in North Carolina and around the world will participate at the conference as speakers and members of panel discussion. The conference will nurture a spirit of tolerance and mutual understanding among devotees of different faith traditions. Special guests will include local Christian, Jewish, and Muslim clergy, Dr. George Braswell, Dr. Peter Fawn, Dr. Leo Lifbuer of Georgetown University, and Stephen Porter of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The event will begin on Thursday, July 26 at 12.30 p.m. and will end on Friday, July 27th at 11.30 a.m. The cost is $25 and students can attend for free. For more information or to register, visit our website at divinity.campbell.edu. We invite you to learn more about us. Check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs. Come to one of our continuing education lectures, to a visitation day, to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty and lead a retreat or Bible study or wrestle with difficult issues. We look forward to hearing from you. You've been there all week and you've been working alongside faith leaders. Uh, Take us in um, a closer look at what you've been doing this week. One of the things that we've done is be at these detention sites and at these detention centers. And um, some of them, I mean, all of them are isolated. And that is another uh, indicator that there's a method of isolation here and that that in itself um, means that there is not nearly the kind of wraparound support services that are there. So we've been on the side of the detention centers themselves. And the, even the Border Patrol, you know, are so quick to say, we're not trained to work with children. <laughs> we're not trained to work with families. And um, this, is, this isn't what we were trained for in our jobs. And yet here is what we're being asked to do. Um, we have had conversations with the guards and people that are around those facilities. And of course, with children, you want to be, protect them. And there are a lot of guards and you don't just want anybody going in there, all the typical child safety concerns. But, um, but that's also assuming that the care that's being given to them is something that's good for the child and not necessarily something that's creating a secondary level of trauma like this kind of isolation and represent, no representation in the course of a immigration process, for example. Um, then, uh, so we've been to the detention centers and detention center sites to draw attention to those, to pray, to speak with the staff that's there, to, you know, to speak with the guards that are guarding. And um, then we've also been um, at, in other places as well, like, there are respite centers and courtrooms where people are. In the courtrooms, they're processed. And then in the respite centers, it's where families who are released from the 
facilities are then they can get a meal and a shower and go on to their next stop uh, on a bus ticket. Many of these families are processed to move on, especially if they're asylum or refugee families that they are processed to move on to join relatives that are in the United States. And some of the unaccompanied minors are also joining relatives in the United States, but then they, you know, they leave a processing center or detention center and then without a ministry center, like a respite center run by Catholic Charities, then they're just standing on the street, you know, with a manila envelope full of legal papers. And so these, these respite centers become very, very important ministry sites for helping people get a meal, um, feeling welcomed. And we were in the respite center um, several times while we've been here in McAllen. It's run by Catholic Charities, a very wonderful woman sister Norma and she has a very good relationship with the courts with the border guards with the centers but you know when people are released that they have someplace to go and there's a meal and there's toys and there's a shower but they're processing 250 people a day they have one shower for women one shower for men it's, you know, it's like a small church building, there's a small area to eat in the rooms with clothing for infants for two years and then men's clothing in another area women's clothing another area larger children's clothing everything is just crammed together and people are just a constant stream of volunteers trying to meet the needs of folks and um, with the change in the policy that's created this large influx of people that normally would not be going through these processes um, under past interpretations of the law, they wouldn't be processed through these um, kinds of processes and therefore they wouldn't be left in these points of, of need. Um, so we've been to these respite centers and really see the, uh, if there's a gap, uh, one of the biggest gaps is the need for larger and more uh, fully staffed respite centers uh, where people can get it's kind of like after a big disaster, you know, where, you know, you don't even have a toothbrush at that point. You've got to get everything together. Um, so the respite centers have been very important points of uh, connection. And then we've been in the courts, two different kind of courts, listening to the cases and, and trying to understand um, the, the different um, the different ways in which people are coming with their own stories. And, and one of the things you learn in immigration processing is if you worked with immigrants at all, you know, every story is unique in some way or another. And there are some general categories, no doubt, but uh, people that are seeking asylum, for instance, who are fleeing terrible violence. One young man we talked with, uh, his father had been killed. And he's 14, and he lived with his dad, and he was, he and his dad were alone. And when his dad was killed, he was just afraid that he, they would come for him as well. And he made his way here, and he has an uncle here in the United States, and he didn't have a lot of information about how to get in touch with that uncle, and, you know, but they were working on that. Um, 
once he got to the respite center, they were trying to help him find all that information. And, um, but just the, the stories of, you know, but he's 14 years old, so he didn't know the exact process of asking for asylum when he got to the bridge. He just came to a place to come over, but that the bridge he went to wasn't a bridge where you can ask for asylum. It's only certain, certain points of entry you can ask for that, and you have to ask for that first thing. And, you know, all the intricacies of the uh, steps uh, were something that were not evident to him as a child. And so, of course, that so he was just put in the unaccompanied minor category and not in the asylum category. So that kind of um, hearing, going into these processes and the, and the hearings and in the courts, we began to hear more of the specifics of different people's stories. Some of them are um, complicated with lots of family members. Some of them have to do with the fact that they were um, could have petitioned, you know, for their own citizenship earlier in their life and didn't, um, you know, their lack of doing that at an earlier time, just all kinds of um, unique, um, just unique details to every story. So been seeing that in the court system. And then um, we also had spoken with individual people in um, that are serving in lots of other ways, um, people that are border patrol, people that are a part of the in law enforcement community here, and and a lot of people that are, you know, one of the interesting things to me was just the nature of border communities that are a lot more porous. Um, you know, my uncle lives on this side of the border. My aunt lives on the other side. My grandmother's here. My grand, my you know, aunt is over there. That people go back and forth across the border all the time for uh, just family life and shopping and banking and medical care and just going back and forth, uh, taking care of the elderly parents, just like you would go across town. And now those simple um, acts of family responsibility or duty um, or even services or things that um, are inhibited because now there's so much more border security that now every single thing you do is requiring four or five steps and you've got to do things exactly a certain way or you can't do that and it's a we heard several times from people in the community of how the community itself is being burdened by um, the interpretation and the addition of so many layers of um, checkpoints and things like that. And just think about that in your own community. If, you know, with the city that you live in, okay, if tomorrow somebody sent, you know, 500 um, National Guard you know, into your town tomorrow, <laughs> how would that change the feel, the look of your town? And several uh, people had mentioned just now, you know, they be walking and they'll be questioned by people, things like that. And um, it just changes the nature of your community. I, I'm a cynic, but I'm, I know I'm not being too cynical when I say this. 
we, we as a society and as the church quickly move on to the next big story, next big stance to take. So how do we, how do we keep this theologically at the forefront of our churches? Well, I think we must, because this is, in, in a way, this is almost a parable of the greater global crisis that we're facing in some ways, and certainly the crisis in our country. To put people first and to, um, to really reclaim the value of a human being in the eyes of God, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to lift that up. And that where there are laws and where there are, where there's the need to regulate, of course, uh, especially where actual uh, harmful acts have occurred, like assault or, you know, like we heard court case today that was um, involuntary manslaughter, somebody, you know, driving a car and, you know, recklessly injuring people. I mean, when you've got situations like that, absolutely, we have to address those situations. And with a, uh, all kinds of different levels of protecting people's rights, but also protecting the public. But so many, but you know, mothers and children and uh, people coming across the border and family men and their children, their families coming across the border. Um, in order to process them, you don't treat them the same way that you treat somebody that just stole a car and had an uh, allegation of uh, involuntary manslaughter. So I think a part of our, um, if, if we lose that capacity as a, as a community and as a country, not to tell those differences and to make the way in which we treat those folks uh, distinctively different, if we are trying to over-criminalize um, things so that we are squeezing people, you know, making them afraid unnecessarily, putting them in egregious situations, um, doing all that unnecessarily. We allow our country to become something that does not, is not, is no longer built on our Judeo-Christian values, because it's our Judeo-Christian values that say, you know, the people of this country are its greatest resource and the and the nature of the way in which people come and join us um, to create those lawful channels is a part of our judeo-christian story as well like i said it's a the story the biblical story is a story of human migration and we built our entire understanding of the value of human life and the sanctity of human life around the understanding that this is a high value to God. God created us in this way. So I think there's a unique call for the church in this, a, a call for compassion and a call for service. Um, and I think there's also a call for conversation around the proportionality of our own society. Even when things go wrong, 
how do we humanely and incrementally deal with situations of wrongdoing rather than just going to an extreme scenario? That's a Christian value as well. What would you say to uh, the local church pastors trying to help their congregation you know, see this beyond a political matter, but, but one at the center of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection? You know, I think, for one thing, for our churches to think about the ways in which to emphasize the scriptural mandate toward hospitality and the scriptural, um, you know, just the scriptural um, embrace of God's vision. I mean, go back to the childhood songs. You know, Jesus loved the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in his sight. The very simple songs, you know, he's got the whole world in his hand. These are the simple tenets of, of faith we're taught as children because be ye kind one to another. That doesn't mean like excusing unlawfulness, but it does mean treating those, treating any situation um, kind of with the least restrictive environment. Don't make something more uh, egregious than it actually is, and don't punish children. Um, there's no other country on earth that punishes children for the sins of their parents, you know? And um, in it, like like we've taken a turn to do right now. And so the um I think that the church is um has a very important voice here just to lift up human beings and the dignity of human beings in the course of, of this time. And I think for the local pastor a just to invite in people that are knowledgeable from your own community, whether it's an immigration attorney that could spend a, uh, a few minutes talking to your church about what's changed, and um, but also people in social services and people that are understanding how, you know, who's been a sponsor for a refugee family, you know, what does family go through and how, how can we help to welcome people into our communities? Because um, that is what's going on everywhere. So it's, a, it's an opportunity to really connect with the global church. One of the things we saw yesterday um, in, in, you know, as we were on the, waiting around we're waiting in a park here in McAllen and no we were in Brownsville and we were waiting in a park and we you know just talking to families what's your story and different people just telling their stories of well you know I came here I uh, applied for my green card I got a green card you know I <clears throat> have a job I've been working in my job seven or eight years um, very proudly, this um, man said, you know, I speak English. All of my family speaks English. We love this country. We want to get our citizenship. And 
you know, their their just their story of uh, their commitment to to their family, and just to to know the stories of people that have come to the U.S. and are making their way here is a wonderful part of our wonderful thing that a, a church can do right now. But also to be mindful that our economy um, is dependent on us having people join us from all over the world. This, there seems to be almost a, an irrational fear of um, people coming to the U.S. when we need them. <laughs> we need them as a, as a part of a workforce. And that was another thing that one of the businessmen here said. Um, he said, you know, I need workers. And um, we've got workers that are that want to come on work visas and you know if they're gonna cut if they're gonna cut down or start criminalizing different parts of immigration then we need to open up another whole section that's on work visas you know so that people can come and come and go and work sorry about that right. it's the reality of, of being in an airport and doing doing good work so um I wonder, um, how can people support the advocacy work of CBF and its partners? We clearly have uh, one of the most fascinating ministries that we've got in CBF Life is uh, some ministries by Greg and Sue Smith and and, uh, some other churches in CBF Live and Puerto Ampieta and several other sites where we have trained representatives that are trained to help people walk through the immigration processing system. So they know what their um, options are and they have representation. And this is one of the things like with these uh, unaccompanied minors, they're not guaranteed representation, but there are a lot of people that are signing up and saying, I'm very willing to come and be a representative. For these kids. So to support CBF Global Missions and to support our CB, you know, CBF Advocacy Department that works to help provide that kind of support for folks. Also in um, in our in our churches and in our uh, Latino network, we've got uh, folks that are advocates for working um, with families from all different countries and interpreting and being a part of a, a processing system. And so the support of the Latino network and the leadership of Ruben Ortiz and uh, our Latino pastors, but to speak up on behalf of uh, families and workers that are immigrating here for the, for the good of their family and the good of our country and um, not to just harshly assume a bad intent or a bad outcome. I think one of the best things we can do is to just be, to stand alongside people that are afraid now. And I think we have a lot of uh, Latino and Hispanic people who feel like, is my, you know, I'm a citizen now, but is my country turning against me? you know, just because of the vilification of um, immigrants. And so I think one of the things that the church can do 
right now is to speak up for friendship. Uh, we were talking yesterday. Um, there were several of us that were speaking Spanish. Um, my Spanish is not all that great, but I felt like, you know, as an Anglo woman, one thing I can do is speak in Spanish and, and affirm the beauty of the Spanish language and the Spanish um, culture and Mexican culture and Honduran culture and Guatemalan culture to speak about the beauty of other cultures at a time when you have voices talking about fearfulness and unwarranted vilification. Um, sometimes the most courageous thing we can do is to speak about our friends and to say, well, I have a different experience. What I've learned from Spanish culture is beauty and joy and a deep spiritual um, vitality. Uh, one moment, I think I, I think about General Assembly, which was right prior, you know, right before all of these images broke for the, um, uh, on the news of, of this child separation. And I remember standing on the first few rows of the, of worship in, in General Assembly. And I was right in the middle of a lot of our um, leaders from the Latino network and some visitors from Puerto Rico that were from churches in Puerto Rico that were with us for General Assembly. And just, I was just reveling in the beauty of their singing and that we were singing hymns and then they would sing them in Spanish right behind me and how beautiful that was and what a soulful delight it was to be in worship with that multicultural, multilingual joy. And I couldn't help but think of that, that moment and what it was giving me, the gift that it was giving me at General Assembly as I stood outside the barbed wire and these harsh walls of these detention centers. And I thought, this is God's vision. This is God's imagination. is the beauty and joy of his people joined together. And this harsh treatment of families is just exactly the opposite of what God envisions for us as a family. And... Um, I just could not help but think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And that God was willing to sacrifice for this beautiful vision of us being together. And I think that is part of our witness now, is to speak that beautiful vision, to, to live that beautiful vision. Susie, we are certainly grateful for um, your willingness to um, to represent our greater fellowship, um, as so many uh, care deeply and are working hard to uh, to fight against um, this immigration crisis and to be the presence of Christ um, in the world around us. Um, I wonder if I might close with a, a beautiful prayer that was written um, by our UCC brothers and sisters. Um, for this last Sunday. Um, and the prayer is this, God of the Christ child, whose own earthly parents were forced to flee the state-sanctioned violence of Herod and find safety in the foreign nation, give us hearts like the people of Egypt to offer not only refuge, but welcome those who arrive at our doorstep in need of safety and protection. 
God who calls us to offer a welcome to the stranger, just as we would offer it to Christ, remind us today and every day that we need not fear of what we do not know, but are free to by following the gospel to call welcome to all, instill in our hearts the courage to love as Jesus taught us in a world that encouraged suspicion and fear and scarcity. All these things we ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 